Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Um, the reading today is Matthew thirteen twenty-four to thirty and thirty-six to forty-three. So Jesus told them another parable: the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom and everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. I'm just going to pray for Monty before he comes up. Father God, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you that Monty's here today to um, teach us, Lord, and to explain your scriptures. I just pray that we will have open hearts and ears to understand and empower Monty to speak and to teach with boldness and humility and with clarity today. Amen. Well, it's great to be back, and uh, I enjoyed being with you on Zoom last year, but let's be honest, it's just not the same, and this is wonderful. It's got a whole different dynamic, and it's great that we can be physically together. So it's super. My name's Monty. Uh, I work, as some of you might know, for IFES, uh, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. It's the international group. Uh, of which the Irish connection is Christian Unions Ireland that Katie works for. And one of my colleagues in Europe is actually Tim Vickers, uh, who's doing the Faith and Work uh, seminar for you. So really recommend that. He's quite a unique guy and uh, great to work with. So make sure you go along with that. And if any of you are students, uh, just can I remind you that there is a whole world outside your college and even outside Ireland and we have lots of opportunities in Europe for folks maybe on years out or post-grad um, or uh, working cross-culturally in a university in another part of Europe. I'd love to talk to you about that. God is at work. I pray, pray for us because tomorrow morning Gwen and I leave um, for Greece. I can see the sympathy coming over the, the, the building here. Uh, but it is work. Um, and if you fancy organizing an international conference just post-lockdown for 60 people from 26 different countries and organizing their travel and getting them all there, then you're welcome to it. I don't think I'll see much of Greece, but this is a very important conference. We have it every year. It's for those who are um, 
evangelists in the universities who speak at university missions, and we're trying to raise up people in all of our European countries to do that. And this will be the first international conference, I think, that IFES has put on since the pandemic. And of course, we happen to be the ones organizing it. I don't know how I got that gig, but I do pray that that goes well. And above all, that those who come will be equipped uh, for the rest of this year as things are opening up again to get back onto the campuses and spread the good news of Jesus. So great to be here. Um, have you ever wondered why evil sometimes seems to go unpunished? Have you ever wondered why even hypocrisy and evil in the church seems to be so prevalent and even uh, go unpunished or be ignored? Well, hopefully this parable may have some answers for us. Now, Steve has asked me to preach on many difficult topics when I come down here over the years, uh, gender issues, sex, materialism, uh, and maybe you think that he's at least given me a nice easy parable this afternoon. But let me tell you, there are ways in which I felt that this parable and passage was actually more difficult than any of the previous topics that I've had to deal with when I've been here. With some of those other topics, you say, it's usually been pretty clear exactly what the Bible teaches. The difficulty is in applying it and communicating it in a way appropriate to our discipleship in 2021. But here the difficulty actually lies in interpreting what the passage is actually saying. And many authors and preachers over the years have differed on this. And specifically the debate can center around whether this is a parable about the whole world in general, or is it about the world of the church, God's community, God's kingdom, God's people, uh, those who identify as believers in Christ. Now, at first glance, it might seem obvious because in verse 38, in the explanation, Jesus says, the field is the world. But if we take that to be the population of the whole earth, this prevents, uh, it presents a few problems of its own. Uh, for a start, it's hard to see the point of a parable about the fact simply that there are good people and bad people in the world. Um, that seems to be pretty self-evident. Uh, and then secondly, in verse 41, Jesus speaks about the master weeding out the evil from his kingdom. And then thirdly, there is the, the wider context. There's the bigger context of Matthew's gospel as a whole. And in Matthew, the kingdom and the world are always in opposition to one another. Yes, Jesus is ultimately Lord of all the earth, but until he returns, it is the devil who is the ruler of the prince of this world. In Matthew particularly, the kingdom of God that Jesus brings in is breaking into the kingdoms of this world. So what Jesus is inaugurating here is something subversive, something different to the kingdoms of this world. Then there's the context of his immediate audience. Matthew is written largely to a Jewish audience, and the teachings of Jesus at this point in the gospel are given to an audience of Jews, people who presumed themselves to be inside God's kingdom because of their religious background or because of their ethnic background. And then the context of the other stories so far in Matthew, there's a theme where the outsiders actually become part of the kingdom, while those who think they're inside become excluded. For example, in chapter 8, 
where there's some connections with this, with this parable, we see the story of the centurion, the Roman centurion servant, who Jesus heals. And Jesus says of this Roman centurion, I have not found faith like this in Israel. And then he goes on to say, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your fathers, in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness. And then finally, there's the context that this parable comes immediately after the parable of the sower. It's similar to it in many ways. In the parable of the sower, we have the situation where the good soil represents authentic believers and is mixed in amongst other soils that signify those who, for various reasons, have some sort of response, but then are not authentic in their faith. So if we just had the, par the parable without any explanation, the most natural way to understand it in Matthew's gospel would be that the field represents the Jewish nation, those who are in the visible community of God's people at that time, the Jews. However, we're still left with the fact that Jesus says the field is the world. Now, the world in Scripture has a lot of different meanings. Uh, it can mean the whole of creation, the cosmos. God created the world. It can mean the realm of humanity. Jesus came into the world. And especially in the letters of the New Testament, it can mean the things that are arraigned against the kingdom of God. Do not love the world or the things of the world. And in English, of course, we use it as well to mean our own personal sphere of existence, our world. Student ministry is my world. Or I would used to speak of my late parents as they got older, thinking their world has got very small. So it's possible that Jesus, in saying the field is the world, could have meant that the world relevant to his hearers. Jesus didn't say church because that would have been meaningless to his hearers. He didn't use the word church until a few chapters later when he speaks specifically to Peter and the inside group. In his public ministry, he spoke about his kingdom. So anyway, that's a long introduction, but just to say however you interpret the parable, you're going to either have to modify how you understand the word world, or you're going to have to modify how you understand the word kingdom in verse 41. And it's largely been determined by what sort of stream or tradition you come from in terms if you have a church or a religious Christian background of some way, it might determine how you've understood that. Uh, if you come from one of the historic uh, churches or state churches in, in Europe, you can see this is quite easily because the church is a mixture of people who are authentic and are not. If you come from a more separatist church tradition uh, that have always said the church is only those who are believers, then you think this is about the whole human race. It's interesting that when I was reading up on this, authors would just presume their own position. So some very good and well-known authors who would say this is about the church didn't try to explain, didn't even bother to deal with verse 38. And then those who think, well, this is obviously the whole world, never tried to deal with some of the other problems that I've already pointed out. They just presumed it. So for what it's worth, I'm going to try to work out how this can speak to us no matter how we understand it, because I think it has something to say to both, to both groups. I think personally, looking at the New Testament as a whole, the best way to understand this parable was to see it in Jesus' parable of referring to the Jewish nation, paralleled today by those who think they are inside God's community. Because the thrust of the parable 
as in Matthew's gospel as a whole, is that not everybody who seems to be in the kingdom is in fact good seed, good soil, good crop. But there are indeed weeds present. And this is what convinces me the most. The weeds and the wheat in the parable are closely together, in the same place, in the same environment, not separate. And the weeds have been sown into the environment of the wheat, not vice versa. It's not that God's people have been sown in amongst the world in this parable. The weeds, worldliness, seems to have been sown by the enemy right into the heart of God's people. And it doesn't matter what part of the Christian denominational spectrum you're part of, because every church, every denomination, every ecclesiology has the reality that there are true and false disciples. The New Testament makes it clear that there will be false teachers, that there will be hypocrites, that there will be those whose faith is not real, that there will be those who say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this in your name or did I not do that in your name? And they will infiltrate the church. You read the New Testament letters. And so the one thing to be, I suppose, aware of whenever we get so hurt and so annoyed and, and, and it is tragic when there is such wrong things that happen in the church is that this was no surprise to Jesus in dealing with fallen human beings. It's no surprise to the apostles who had to deal with this from the beginning. Whether in our case it is the historic abuse scandals in mainline churches or in the context of other churches who pride themselves in being made up of only believers, we've had scandal after scandal, not just of celebrity televangelists, but more recently headliners like Bill Hybels or Ravi Zacharias, disgraced, not because of just one sin or one misdemeanor, but, a, but, but an entire career, an entire catalogue of deception and abuse and lies. So whatever way you want to interpret the parable, there are three things, I think, that at least we can take from this. And the first is this. Uh, there are three types of news. And I've called the first one the news that is no news. The news that is no news. It's a little bit like when you click on some clickbait article on the internet because it promises some sensational headline. You read the article only to find that there's absolutely nothing there to justify the headline. There is no news. There is a non-story. And the no news is that good and evil coexist. Let me take it first of all, if you like, as the whole world. Humanity is broken and sinful. There are those who belong to the evil one, and that should be self-evident. I think one of the most important apologetic arguments that we need to make as we present the gospel today in this culture is that the greatest lie that we hear from this culture is that humanity is basically good. I remember talking one time in a midnight stage co air coach from Dublin Airport to Greystones. I got the, uh, I got the 10 p.m. Uh, uh, bus from the airport out to Greystones, uh, and then I had to get the 11.31 back from Greystones to the airport. Don't ask, it's a long story, and it's, <laughs> and it's quite embarrassing. But anyway, I got to know the bus driver pretty well. Uh, I was the only one on the bus and he was a little surprised to see me again, let's just say that. But we got talking, and he found out a little bit of what I did, and he started to talk about, you know, how wonderful humanity was, and, 
You know, isn't it great that we have made so many, much progress in our world since the dark ages and everything and everything. And I was saying, listen, do you know that more people were killed in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries, you know, and, and, and atrocities? Ah, he said, yes, but, um, but that wasn't Europe. And I says, well, the Balkans, you know, uh, you know, Bosnia? And he says, ah, but that wasn't the EU. If, 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 I had, if I had my way, I would put the world in charge of the EU. Uh, the, the, sorry, the EU in charge of the world. I would make sure the EU ruled the world. Now, thankfully, his bus driving was a better standard than his grasp of contemporary history. But uh, I was just sort of thinking, do people really read the news with blinkers on? If anyone has eyes to see, or as Jesus says, has ears to hear... We are being constantly told against all evidence that salvation is possible within yourself and that humanity is basically good. So it really shouldn't be news to anyone who has access to the wider world through internet or online news media that we are a sinful race and that there will be a judgment. The second news is what I would call the disturbing news. And the disturbing news is that sin may be closer than we think. Good and evil can coexist even within the church. I think if we were to take the field as the whole world, there's nothing particularly surprising or disturbing about Jesus's, for Jesus' hearers to find out that there are evil people out there in the world and that they're going to be judged. But the big problem is that there are weeds closer to home than that. And that within his visible kingdom, there will be those who will be judged. Now, this is keeping, in keeping with a number of his other parables and teachings. There will be many who come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many things in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of evil. Same word as in this parable. I never knew you. There were people who imagined themselves within the fellowship of Jesus' followers, but that they weren't. And of course, the, the image is disturbing. It's, it's where we get the images of the fire of hell, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, I think they're, they're just images, but they represent something. They represent a, an internal, self-consuming loathing, a loss of everything that emanates from God because God is not there. Therefore, there is no beauty, there is no goodness, there is no love, there is no joy, just darkness. Maybe you've occasionally heard some people flippantly say, oh, well, if I don't get to heaven, I'm not too worried because all my friends will be going the other way. And I'm thinking that sounds quite flippant, but of course the problem is that in the other direction there is no friendship because friendship is a gift from God. Friendship is something that he has given us in his common grace for all of us. And in hell there is no friendship. There is just self-centered, self-consuming Let's look back to where those phrases are used elsewhere by Jesus. And it's back in that story of the centurion, where Jesus says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that was addressed to those who thought that they had no problems getting into heaven. Yes, Jesus did talk more about hell than anyone else. So we can't ignore that doctrine. But he always talked about it in the hearing, not of the outsiders, not of the Gentiles, not of those dogs that the Jews looked down on. He always talked about it in the hearing of the self-righteous Pharisees and religious leaders. So I think it's true to say that scripturally, 
although hell is of relevance to everyone, in terms of when we communicate it and how we communicate it, it is a doctrine not to be used to frighten unbelievers, but it is a doctrine to disturb and challenge those who think themselves believers through something other than the work of Christ because of their own merit, because they are good people, because God should be fortunate to have me in heaven. You see, self-righteousness is one of the greatest sins. And that's why Jesus said that those who are outcast and despised and seen as outsiders will be racing through the gates of heaven ahead of these guys because they understand their need. And those who think that that's where they belong, that, you know, I should be getting in there because of my own views and my own criteria, they will be left outside. So there's disturbing news, but there's also good news. We're told that the righteous, not the self-righteous, the righteous, that is those who have Christ's righteousness imputed to them, they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. In Revelation, we're told that in that final kingdom, there will be no sun because, quote, the glory of God is the sun and the Lamb is the lamp. So what happens in heaven is that as we share in the righteousness of God, we share in His radiance. We shine with His reflected glory. The good news is that when we feel surrounded by hypocrisy, when we've been hurt by the church, when we've been shocked by scandal, there is a judgment and those weeds will be taken away. And the good news is that when we feel surrounded by the darkness of this world, that because of Christ, we can look forward to an eternal radiance. So what do you take from that this, morning, this afternoon for yourselves? Well, I think there are two things that must be kept in balance. Firstly, there is a warning to be cautious about overstepping the mark and starting to do God's work for Him. To misguidedly imagine that we can create ourselves a pure church, that we can set ourselves up as the ones that decide who is in and who is out, Let's not forget that one of the key things in this parable is that the master instructs his servants not to try to tear up the weeds, but to leave them for him at the final judgment. It wasn't their job. And I think if we are honest, we can see the sense in this because sometimes when we try to be too specific or dogmatic or go beyond Scripture in terms of who is in and who is out, we're actually not very good at it. And again, that's a theme from the Gospels, isn't it? Luke chapter 9, Lord, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name, and we stopped him because he wasn't one of us. And Jesus said, no, whoever's not against us is for us. I once heard it say that when we get to heaven, there'll be two surprises. There'll be people there we didn't expect to be there, and there'll be people who are not there who we fully expected to be there. The church is, after all, a place for sinners, and we all may be at different stages in dealing with that sin in our Christian life. We may be at different stages of our ongoing repentance, our ongoing discipleship. So I think there is a call for caution here before trying to root out the weeds too early. 
whether it is writing off people as thinking they're beyond grace or beyond redemption, or excluding people from fellowship because they don't measure up to our personal standards, if our standards are more than what the Bible demands. So a word of caution. And then secondly, I think we need to balance this by what other passages in the New Testament teach us. And that is that we need to watch our life and doctrine closely, as Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Regard the deposit of the gospel within the church. So yes, there is a church discipline, precisely because people can infiltrate the church for all sorts of selfish and even sinful motives. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, belongs to the Father. But it has to be conducted carefully and pastorally and graciously. This is the balance. If there is clear false teaching, it has to be dealt with. If there is clear unrepentant immorality, it has to be confronted. If there is divisiveness and pride and arrogance, it needs to be rebuked. Paul talks about discipline being exercised not just on the unrepentantly immoral, but also on the divisive and the gossips. But church discipline is always aimed at restoration. So while the parable doesn't discount the need for church discipline, especially in the case of false teaching, we need to protect the faith of those within the church. It's precious. But although it does talk about that, I would be concerned about those churches or church leaders who appear a little bit too keen to do it, who almost revel in it. In my tradition, we have an annual event called the, the General Assembly, when all the pastors and leaders get together for one week and discuss all sorts of things to do with the church. And there's reports on mission, on social action, on all sorts of things to do with theology and the, and the mission of the church. But there's also an afternoon session called the private session, which is only open to those who are full voting members, and that's for issues of discipline. It's for when things have gone very badly wrong in a church or with a leader, and when, sadly, you have to deal with some issues of discipline and even scandal. I wonder which is the best attended session at the General Assembly. People who haven't showed up for the debates on the mission of the church, or how we respond to the great cultural challenges of our day, you can be sure they'll get their seat for the private session. There's something wrong with that. You can apply that into your own situation as you will. It's not our job to pass final judgment. We leave some things to God, and we concentrate on what our job is. So what is our job? Our job is to persevere in the faith so that we will not be found wanting when the angels come and the harvest takes place. That we will not grow weary in doing good. Yes, this is a parable of judgment, but it finishes on a note of great hope and great grace. We will get the chance to shine. If we keep in step with the Spirit, if we keep in Christ, we will get the chance to shine. 
if we are to reflect the glory of the Father in heaven, then surely we should be starting to reflect some of that glory now in his kingdom. Let your light so shine before others, says Jesus, so that they will see your good works and they will glorify your Father in heaven. And guys, if we shine now, we will shine even more gloriously then. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that as judge of the world, judge of the whole earth, that you do right, that there is nothing evil or dark to be found in you, that we trust ourselves to your grace. We trust ourselves to the righteousness of Christ given to us, not of ourselves. And Lord, as we humbly continue to live bowed before you in humility and in thanksgiving, that you would enable us to shine like stars as we hold out the word of life to an unbelieving world. Lord, we pray that you would protect our own lives. You would protect this church from the evil one. You would enable it to be again a beacon of light in this city. And Lord, we look forward to that final harvest not because of the judgment, which is just a sobering reality of how evil needs to be dealt with, but we look forward to it because we know in faith that there will be those gathered alongside us who we have been praying for, who we have been reaching out to, who as yet do not know you, but on that day they will have come to faith. And we pray, Lord, that that whatever this church does in the next few months to further your kingdom, you would bless it and that you would bring those folks into your church and into your kingdom. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.